So this morning, though, we've got a guest from Provcoatsville. Dwayne Walton is here to preach. Some of you, no doubt, have, have, have joined us this morning to hear Dwayne. I'm just know Dwayne, but one of the things that Jairus and I were just talking about recently is the need, especially in these times, to partner up with, with gospel partners that are doing good work right in this community. We shouldn't be isolated. We shouldn't be laboring in isolation or laboring in independence. We should seek to partner where we can for the advance and the spreading of the fame of Jesus. And so, and Dwayne, I believe we have a, a new friend. Uh, Dwayne pastors with Josh Kranz, who many of you do know. He's a friend to us and a friend of Dwayne. So any friend of if Josh's is a friend of ours. Dwayne also is the executive director of the Parksburg Point. He may be telling you a little bit. I hope he tells us at least a little bit about that this morning. But he's here to preach, to speak the truth of God's word to us this morning. So would you welcome him as he comes to do that? Thank you. Appreciate it. Good morning, church. It's an absolute blessing to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank you to the pastors for inviting me. It's one of the blessings that God has given me since being saved is to be able to um, appreciate his people and God's people come from all different backgrounds different communities and I've been just honored to be able to speak at different churches and um, so thankful to be here with you at Granny Wine Grace this morning as mentioned um, I'm good friends with Josh Kranz uh, so if you know him I'm sorry um, <laughs> but it's a uh, it's an honor the one of the reasons I'm in this area is because of Josh's father Jack Kranz and its impact and influence on my life. Um, as usual, when it comes to things like this, technology always fails. I think, okay, I'm back up, I'm good. Um, I'm also the executive director of the Parksburg Point uh, Christian Youth Center. And just give you a quick understanding of what that is. Um, we are trying to address this challenge that the church faces. The challenge that we can actually saturate communities with churches but fail to saturate communities with the gospel. And, and what I mean by that, you, you can, I grew up in New York City, so in New York City, there'll be several churches on one block. And on each corners of the blocks, there are drug dealers and violence and challenges going on. And so although our buildings have saturated the community, that transformational power of the gospel does not necessarily uh, impact um, because we have to get out there with the gospel. We got to preach it. We got to teach it. We got to communicate it. However, if you look at the last maybe 40 years of Christianity in America, we've changed the way we, we, we do so. So some of you might remember a day when, uh, back in the days when you would go out in the streets and street evangelism, do street evangelism. You get a track and you go out and you stop people and you talk to them. Well, our culture has changed a great deal. And not a lot of people are even open to that. Um, you know, you go to talk to someone and the way they show you that they're not interested is that they have their phones out and their, their faces like this the whole time. That's a way to keep you at bay. There was also another form of evangelism, door-to-door -door evangelism, when you go and you knock on the door and uh, you talk to people. 
Well, that doesn't happen as much anymore because now parents will send their kids to tell you that no one's home. And, uh, and so it's, it's difficult to do that. It's not necessarily the failure of the church. It's the change of our, uh, our society. So what many churches have done, they've gone to services that they will call seeker-friendly, where the idea is that we want to use the service as not only a means to edify, build, and develop the believers, but as a way to uh, evangelize non-believers. So they say, hey, why don't you invite your friends, invite your families? And that has also led to the explosion of the megachurch um, in, in America. However, a lot of data suggests that although churches are getting bigger, the number of Christians have not really changed. That what's happened is that we've actually taken Christians from smaller churches that are dying and we've just brought them into larger churches, but still the need remains for us to be out there. And I, I would challenge this. If every single church in America was packed full where there's no more room, do you know there'd still be more people outside of church than in church? So we have to share the gospel. We have to get out there and get to people. Well, what the Parksburg point is, is just a, a means to do that. What we've done, we've created a community center um, in the middle of Parksburg, something that the families have been asking for. And so with the community center, we have a, 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 a cafeteria that uh, seats about 100. We have a uh, indoor basketball court. We have outdoor courts, outdoor skate parks, you name it. So you can imagine the kids want to come. And you're addressing a need that the parents have. But our number one concern is to bridge ourselves to local churches that will come and adopt a night and minister to these kids and these families. So every evening we're open, especially when we didn't have COVID, and dozens and dozens of youth will come. And oftentimes your parents will come behind them. But when they're there, they're meet, met and greeted by a different church every night. So that's our means of bringing the gospel. We say this to many churches. Um, if you were to disappear from the community, would the community feel it? So that's a question we have to ask ourselves. But are there ways that we can engage the community? And the point is just one way in which you can do that. And so if you're interested in learning more about the, uh, the point, I would love to talk to you. I know we're looking to partner in some way um, because we believe that we have to share the word of God. And that's what I want to talk about, the gospel, this morning. Right now, this country is, is in, in bad shape, if we're honest. For some of us, we haven't felt it yet. For some of our neighbors, they've been feeling it even before COVID. We have pandemics. We have riots. We have economic challenges. And some of us might be asking a question, what is God doing? And in asking it the question that way, we are kind of sometimes blaming God for it. Is, is God up to something? Especially when there's a pandemic and there's, there's diseases and people are dying. Some people automatically think that God is judging in some way, and he might be. But then there's another way you could ask that question. What is God going to do about this? And so I, I wanted to share a little bit about what I think God has always been doing and the role that we must play in it. But I want to list a few things that um, the people in Jesus' day were experiencing. Uh, political intrigue and tensions. Do we have political tension right now in our country? <laughs> For some of us, we do sense that this November election is probably going to be 
the most violent we've ever had. And we need to pray against that. But the reality is political intrigue and tensions existed in Jesus' day. You had riots. The Jewish people were under the constant oppression and abuse of Rome. And so they were always trying to fight back and, and rioting. And if you read the history of the Jews, especially in the first century, you will see riot after riot that was being squashed violently by the Roman authority. But that's the world that Jesus came into. You had economic disparities. If you notice, Jesus talked a lot about uh, tax collectors. And even in our day, who likes to pay taxes? But the tax collectors there were used by Rome to continue to squeeze every penny out of the Jewish people, which created some of this tension, which led to riots, which led to unrest. But the reality, it, it, it exasperated already existing economic disparities. There were the very rich and the very poor, and Jesus was born to the very poor. There was violence. Rome was ruthless. In fact, the cross is uh, evidence of this. This was how they put the world in check. This is how they told the world that they were the ones in charge. This is how they told a group of people that claimed that they were God's people, God's chosen people that had a certain role to play in the world. And Rome said, we'll show you who's in charge. We see violence all over. We see communities being burnt down. We see police brutalities and we see communities rising up against those in authority. There was enmity, enmity between the people and law enforcement in Jesus' day. You know, when Jesus says, hey, if somebody asks you to carry uh, their, their luggage one mile, you do it for two. <clears throat> that was an exact response to what the centurions would do. And it, it would be brutal sometimes. They would come into a community with all their stuff and they would call some of the young men and they would put all their, their baggage and luggage on them and make them carry it. That's how they showed their superiority to the Jewish people. And if you were a Jewish father, you stood there, you looked at this, and there's nothing you could do as they basically enslaved your child for that amount of time. And Jesus says, listen, I know you want to fight back, but carry it for two miles. He says, turn the other cheek. When Jesus said this, it wasn't in, in a vacuum. It was a reality of a people oppressed but look at the world that he was in. It was an ugly world. We know diseases existed. So much of his miracles was to heal people. And you had leprosy, which people were probably more fearful of then than even we are of COVID-19. You had rampant lawlessness. People were being caught in sin and being paraded out to Jesus. What do we do with this woman? Let's stone her. The law said to stone her. There was a, a group of people, so many of them, who gave up on religion. And you see how the religious leaders, they, they always judged Jesus and criticized him because he would hang out with these people. And apparently they were still drunkards and they were, they were still prostitutes. And Jesus would hang out with them, but it was a lawlessness in society. And we see it in our own society. We see sin paraded in front of us and called good and acceptable. 
How many of us have a challenge now watching a television show with your children? Where, you know, this has really been, uh, this COVID-19 has shown me how messed up television is. I had no other option. I couldn't go anywhere. So I said, hey, maybe the Disney Channel can provide some good family. And I'm watching some of these shows, and I'm glad my kids aren't that, you know, they're young. So they can't see what I see, some of the ideas and the philosophies that's even coming but let's forget about the Disney Channel. Let's talk about music. You now have access to more music than ever before. And you can literally listen to hours and hours of some of the most vile things people can think of to say. There was a time of rampant lawlessness then. It's a time of rampant lawlessness now. Manipulative religion. The people who were supposed to be the ones that, that were to mediate between God and the rest of people, they were so corrupt. And they forced themselves on people and forced religion on people and used it to either crush them or to get a lot out of them. And we know this is something that we are seeing in our own country. We've seen a lot of so-called Christian leaders who are now falling. People have been telling us for years, look out for that guy. He's not what he says he is, but we've propped them up. They were manipulative and very judgmental. Same thing happened in Jesus' day. Ethnic tensions. Time of ethnic tensions. The, there were a group called the Samaritans, and then there was a group called the Jews. We could have gone into those communities and say they look exactly alike. We would have considered them the same racial group or category. They couldn't stand each other. They hated each other. And some of their practices were so condescending towards each other. For instance, um, the history books <clears throat> claim that if a Samaritan wanted to buy something from, from a Jewish person, they would have to put their money in a, in a cup of water or a bowl of water because a Jewish person would not take money directly from them because they felt they would be unclean. They want the money. We all want the money. But, but to, to, to show you how they thought of, of each other. And Jewish people would never even go into Samaritan communities. They would, if, if there was a, 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 a longer way around a Samaritan community, they would go that way. That's how much they hated each other. And we see the ethnic tensions and we see how the media can use it to manipulate people and people who have the same experiences, who are asking for the same things for their families, look at each other and say, I hate you because you have a different skin tone. This is what we're seeing. This is what was in Jesus' day. And finally, uncertainty and fear rule the day. How many of us are living in fear? How many of us this past uh, week, when you saw the stock market collapsing, you, 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 you got a sick stomach, a sick, sick feeling in your stomach? How many of us are worried about school for our children? And if you have to do it online, you know how scary that prospect is. But some of the students right now, they've, they've worked so hard and they want to graduate and it doesn't look like they're going to have that same experience that their parents had or their buddies had. And if you're an athlete and you, you worked your butt off to try to get to college to play sports, all that is up in the air. Time of uncertainty, a time of fear. This is similar to the world that Jesus lived in. Now hear this. In Jesus' day, they said, God, what are you doing? 
God, what are you going to do about this? Jesus comes into this world and says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. God is doing something about it. And what he's doing is the kingdom work. And what does that look like? Well, it started out looking like it looked pretty good for a lot of people. It was Jesus preaching some powerful messages. They said no one ever spoke like this before. He's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He speaks with such authority. And it was loving the messages. And you can imagine that some of his sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, when he said to the same people, you are the light of the world. You are, you are the salt of the earth. They could have said, amen, hallelujah, praise Jesus. And then the, the healings took place. And that even encouraged people even more because they saw tangibly what the kingdom of God looked like. But then Jesus asked his disciples once, he said, who do you say that I am? Very important question. Who do you say? So they're all coming up with all these different names. Some say Isaiah, some say uh, Elijah, some say one of the prophets. He said, but what do you say? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, heaven revealed that from you to you, not flesh and blood. But let me tell you something else. You know who I am. Let me let you know why I'm here. And the Bible says he began to tell them that he was going to be arrested by the ones in authority and would be crucified. And Peter said, no way. Because if you say to God, what are you doing or what are you going to do about this? Jesus dying doesn't sound like the right solution. It sounds like uh oh, things have gone drastically wrong. But we know what happened. He was taken to that cross. He was beaten. He was brutalized. He was crucified. And then one of the men, the centurions that were in charge of making sure he's dead, looked at this dead Jewish teacher and said the same thing Peter said. Truly, this is the Son of God. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving this fact that he is the Son of God. But hear this. God, what are you doing? What are you going to do about this? That resurrection, to me, would be it, right? Now we can go on being your people. Sit on your throne. Be king. In fact, since you've just proven that Rome's instrument of, of murder doesn't work on you because you got up after three days, you've just weakened the people in power. Let's go after them. And Jesus says, no, I'm leaving. I'm sending you my Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses to the ends of, the, uh, of this earth and you will preach the gospel. Imagine the fact that when we ask God, what are you going to do about this mess that we're in? His response is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hasn't changed. So I just want to emphasize real quickly the importance of the gospel. Then I'm going to talk about what it means to address poverty within this context. Because that's one of the questions we're asking. What are we supposed to be doing during this time? Now, 
That was just my introduction. I'm a black preacher, so that's how it goes down. I was already told I have 50 minutes. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, shows us the importance of this gospel message. Listen, we want to do the right thing by this world. We know that the amount of need is increasing and it's going to get even worse. We know there's uh, mouths to feed. We know there's homes to protect and families who are being evicted. And we are motivated and mobilized to address those things. But let's not forget the gospel. Galatians is important because the whole, story, the whole book of Galatians is about the integrity of the gospel. There was a group of people that was introducing to this Galatians church the idea that, you know, uh, Brandywine Grace, right? Listen, they were saying grace isn't enough. Grace is God doing it and you not deserving. He did it all. We know this. This group of people are saying, hey, listen, man, you need to do some stuff also. In order to receive salvation, you can't rely only in God's grace. You got to do something to, to deserve it, which means there's no grace. But there's a reason why this church is called Brandywine Grace, because if it's not for grace, we're done. We're in trouble. So Paul has to battle back, and he writes this letter, one of his most severe letters. But in chapter 2, verse 10, 1 through 10, you see encapsulated this passion for the gospel, the importance of the gospel. And I want to leave this church with this idea. Listen, do the good, help the poor, address these needs. But if we do it without sharing God's gospel, we've actually done a disservice to people. It says this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. As I read this, think of all these different names that are coming up. This is Paul. He's with Barnabas. If you read the book of Acts, Barnabas is so important to Paul personally, but also to the early church. Titus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's one of us. He has no connection to God's people. <clears throat> and he has well, two letters in the New Testament, right? Isn't that interesting? He goes on. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, <clears throat> sorry, who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Um, that's a bad word right there, circumcised. I don't want to share that right now. But basically what they were saying is that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to first become a Jew and do all the things the law prescribed to be Jewish. Paul says, I took Titus with me and they said, fine, Titus is good. He didn't have to be circumcised. He didn't have to become a Jew because the gospel is about grace. God is receiving and accepting everyone on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ, not on anything they did. Paul says, uh, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Very important. 
Now, in, in context, he's talking about the truth of the gospel being preserved for the Galatian church. But we know it's about us also. Think about the Protestant Reformation when the truth of the gospel was just being tarnished and clouded and men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and so many others raised, were raised up by God to make sure the truth of the gospel is preserved for our generation. Now, if these men are willing to be persecuted, if these men are willing to stand up to people in power to ensure that the truth of the gospel is preserved, we then should make sure we're using it we then should make sure we're preaching it and teaching it. We can't step back from the truth of the gospel just to simply address the needs that are around us. You don't have to give the gospel up to do good things for the world. So they continue. He goes on. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, uh, you'll see Peter, John, and James, the brother of Jesus, were the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Paul is out there with the Gentiles. They're trying to make sure the gospel they're preaching and the gospel Paul's preaching is, uh, is the same gospel message. And what Paul is saying when he went before them and presented to them what he's been preaching, they added nothing to him, basically showing that, hey, we, we're preaching the same message. What's important about this is that Paul was separate from these guys. He was not one of the apostles. He was not one of the original disciples. He met Jesus, as we know, on the road to Damascus. He got his gospel message from Jesus. Now, historically, this is, a good, this is good to know that they have independent sources of people who were preaching the same message that for many years never crossed paths. This shows the truth of this message, right? He goes on. <clears throat> on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, why am I sharing this message? Now, can you, can you see why the gospel is important? Could you, we're talking about Paul... Barnabas, Titus, James, Peter, and John. These men, <clears throat> if you want to put it in a, in, a, in a secular term, these are the heavyweights of our faith. And when they got together to discuss important matters, their discussion is the gospel because it's the gospel that God gave them to bring to a broken world. They weren't discussing strategies and marketing. They weren't discussing the latest trends. They weren't even discussing who's running to be the next Caesar. They weren't very concerned about who was on top in Rome because they knew who was on top of the church. And that is what drove them to preach this message. See, the gospel... It brings together the idea of how one can become right with God 
but also how do we put God in his right place as king and Lord? It was troubling to understand that Jesus became king of this world on a cross. That was his his inauguration. And that was hard for the world to understand. And these men went to proclaim this and said, when you unite with Christ, when you trust and have faith in him, that he is God's king, and if you realize that you have sinned and fallen short and realize that that king's blood paid for your sins, you will be right with God. You will be God's people. That is kingdom preaching. I'm happy for our presidents and I pray for them. We ought to pray for presidents because they help to keep the peace. But they ain't kings. They ain't the king of heaven and of earth. In fact, we need to pray for them even more because they will actually answer to Jesus Christ for what they have done in this world as rulers. We need to be weeping for these people. Regardless of what uh, they're Democrats or Republicans, guess what? They will answer to King Jesus and we need to be praying for them and pray they do well. But why am I saying all this? Now, we we know the gospel is important just by this passage, but look at verse 10. Verse 10 is often not recognized and it's a part of this passage. Verse 10 says this, only they asked, remember, they, they had this conversation, this deep conversation about the gospel, and look at what they included in this conversation. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries. I've gone online and listened to sermons, and this verse, chap, verse 10, is probably the most forgotten verse. Isn't it interesting The verse that tells us to remember the poor is the verse that's forgotten in this passage. Now, I I think I understand why. Galatians is just a, a heavy, deep book. And right after this passage, Paul goes into his confrontation with Peter. Who doesn't want to read that? We want to see what happened when Paul and Peter clashed. And so we jump over this passage that says, remember the poor. And Paul's response, that's the very thing I was eager to do. You see from the apostles' perspective, and even in Jesus' own life, we can hold both up together. We can preach the gospel, and we can remember the poor. We don't have to compromise either. But what I would like to do in the next 10 minutes, and I'm not sure how much time I have left, okay, is talk about what it really means to remember the poor. I've seen Christian groups go into communities, and I've seen them feed people. I've seen them build houses destroyed by hurricanes. I've seen them counsel people, but I've seen them leave those communities and never ever mention the gospel. And what I'm saying is this, coming from someone that's poor, that's the greatest disservice you can do to people. Those needs always come back. The hurricanes hit again. The food run out again. Those needs come and go, and many of those needs we can address ourselves. What we can't address is salvation. We can't save ourselves. We need the message of the gospel, and it's so important as we go forward into this uncertain future that as Christians do what we can to help people. 
but never leave them without the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be poor? He says, remember the poor. I want to talk about an expanded understanding of poverty. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He expanded poverty. It's not just simply a lack of material goods. That is a big part of it, but it was a deeper poverty. My poverty started when I was, before I was born. I'm from a third world country called Guyana's in South America, one of the poorest countries in this hemisphere. Only Haiti is more poor. My mother made a big mistake. She got pregnant at the age of 15 with me. Many of her family members, many people in the village, encouraged her to have an abortion. For them, it makes sense. This type of material poverty does not allow for you to have a child at 15 and think about being successful in life. They measured my importance based on the impact it would have on my mother's success. So for them, the abortion was, would have been the best thing she could do. And she was pressured from a whole bunch of different places, family, friends, people in the village. But my mother has always been a bit rebellious and decided no. And when she decided to have me, despite just the reality of this is going to change your life and probably ruin your life, she wasn't met with people encouraging her. She wasn't met with people applauding her difficult decision. She was put down and ridiculed for most of her life. My father viewed me as his biggest mistake. And because he was pursuing a career in professional sports and soccer, he didn't have the time or the desire to raise me. I was my mother's shame. You know, kids remember a lot more than we give them credit for. And I know, I know of times when my mother, who's always looked young, she probably looks younger than I do right now. She's only 15 years older than me. People would come to talk to her and ask her, is that your brother? And with shame in her voice and on her face, she would say, no, that's my son. And she would feel the judgment emanating from these people. Be careful what you say around kids and what you do around kids. We get it, and it stays with us. My family immigrated to the United States. My country was just not a place where you can actually have um, opportunities like you can in America. And I, I will say this right now. America is imperfect. Far from it. There's a lot of problems that has to be, sol that has to be solved. But if you want to know whether or not America is great, you don't have to go to the politicians, go to the immigrants. And they will tell you this is the greatest nation in the world. And that was our view and that's still our belief. America provides opportunities that nowhere else can, that you can start from absolutely nothing. If you commit to working hard, you likely will be able to make it in this country. The liberties are so great. And unfortunately, I see in this country the willingness to give up all of that right now. Be aware of what's happening. Anyway, my family, my grandmother was the first to come. 
she came in 1981 and here's the thing I love my grandmother but she needs a better sense of geography she decided of all places in America to come she went to Brooklyn New York right I mean she could have gone to Los Angeles or Miami it's hot out there we would have been used to the climate she went to Brooklyn New York and I went from basically a village a jungle being able to run around everywhere and do whatever I wanted to being confined to a basement apartment in Brooklyn because we were literally too afraid to be out. It was 11 of us in a basement apartment. But let me tell you this, at no time did we look down or despise that, right? I, I, you know, as a kid, I, I was just, we just knew that we, had, we were in a better position in the United States than we would have been anywhere else. But it wasn't easy, particularly for my mother. By that point, she had two of us. We were the last to come. We got here in 1986. We're talking about poverty and understanding the, the, how deeper it is than just a lack of, of material goods. So my mother had a child, another child, my sister. The three of us slept in the boiler room because there was no space in a one-bedroom basement apartment. My mother, a few years ago, called me to tell me something. She said, do you remember the night I put your coat on, you and your sister, walked up the steps and was going towards the subway. Of course I don't remember. She says, I was going to commit suicide. She said the world was too cruel. She said, I did not want to continue living in such a cruel world. Now my mother's only 21 at this time. And she said, I didn't want to leave you and your sister in this cruel world. Something is wrong when at 21, this can be the reality of anyone. And more and more, it's even younger people who are just disillusioned about life. My mother relented and decided to not do what her mind was made up to do. Not long after that, my mother became homeless. It was probably the most painful ordeal I experienced very traumatic to see my mother's clothes packed in trash bags and thrown out on the streets as if that's what she is. When we talk about poverty, we often talk about the lack of food or money. It's deeper than this. I work with children that see this trauma all the time. Homelessness, evictions, but this is what it really is. When the people you love most are treated as if they don't matter. And it reflects on you. My grandparents raised me and my sister. My mother's homeless and she told me stories of having to be on the subway going back and forth with nowhere to go. I was 10 at the time, the last time I lived with my mother. My grandparents moved to a third floor apartment and she, they took me and my sisters. I would wake up early in the morning and just stand at the window and just look, hoping to see my mother come. And I remember one particular birthday, that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. When we talk of poverty, it's more than just empty cupboards, it's empty souls, it's brokenness, it's trauma. It's not wanting to live no anymore, and you're only 10. At our center, we work with so many kids, hundreds, 
we work with this one particular group home where some of the kids are there because they've gotten in trouble with the law. Some are there because they're preparing to age out of the foster care system. And they're too old and too big and no one wants to take them in because they're afraid of them. They're not young and cuddly with bright smiles. The years and years of being passed around has created this callousness. There's a young man who was, and we're always sharing the gospel every night. Young man all the way in the back. As I'm sharing the word of God, I could just tell something's happening and he came up to me afterwards. And he says, I've never had a home. I've never had a family. He says, since the age of three, I've been back and forth. He said, at 11, I try to kill myself. 11, because he had been molested several times in several different homes. And of course, now he, his mind and everything is just so clouded and broken. That's poverty. Now he's 17. And our society says, once you're 18, you're out on your own. He doesn't stand a chance. That's poverty. You can give him a bank account with $100,000. It'll be depleted in less than a year. That's poverty. About a year after my mother was, uh, became homeless, I had another traumatic uh, event in my life, in my family's life. One of my uncles got into an altercation with someone in the apartment above us. He was stabbed in his throat, came down, ran down the steps, banged on the door. My grandmother opened the door, and I would love for you to meet my grandmother. She's one of the strongest women I've ever met. He falls into her arms. I, 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 I'm able to see it. I'm looking. I'm standing. I'm staring. He falls into his, her arms, and he's bleeding profusely. And I'm not trying to be graphic because sometimes when I say this, for some, it's very graphic, and you can't believe it. But with the kids I work with, they, they shake their heads this way because they experience such violence. And he dies in my grandmother's arms. And I'm there standing, staring at it. And the, the deeper pain that night was an aunt and myself. We had to clean the walls. water and bleach to get the blood off the wall. I'm only 11. You want to know what it means to remember the poor? It's deeper than just food and money. It's the violence these communities experience. You want to know why there's so many clashes between the, uh, the poor African Americans and, and the police? My neighbor is an officer, a great man, loves his family, loves his job, and would give his life for anyone. And after some of the latest trauma, he came to me and said, why do they hate us? Why do people in the black community hate us? And I asked him this question. I said, as an officer, do you sometimes get some calls, and when you look at what community it's in, you're relaxed. You can go. You can knock on the door, you can hear shouting and screaming, you can even hear glass breaking, but you walk in there and you know you're going to get it under control because of the zip code. He said, absolutely. I said, are there some other communities? Just driving in that community, do you feel a tension? 
And when you get out of your car, your hands are on your gun. And he says, absolutely. And I said, imagine what it feels like to live in that community every single day. It's inevitable that the clashes happen. It's broken people, hurt people. We've seen situations where it's just a, a, a friendly stop or just a simple stop that gets out of hand because there's just fear and tension. And every time those who were in charge of you, they abuse you so you can't even trust the authority. This is what's happening. This is the, the poverty I'm talking about. I'm almost done. I'm sorry. 15 months after that, another uncle was murdered. He was shot in his back on Flatbush Avenue. Two years after that, my father came to the United States. I only remember seeing him twice. One time he gave me $20. The other time I bumped into him. No one should just bump into their fathers on Flatbush Avenue. I don't remember any time receiving a hug from him. I despised my father. My father became a professional soccer player, so in my country he's pretty well known and popular, but he was kicked off the team because he was trafficking drugs. I didn't find this out until years, years later when my wife and I went to my country to visit. And so when he came to America, he continued with the drugs and apparently destroyed a whole project system in Virginia. But in 1995, I got a call from my mother who had gotten back on her feet to tell me that my father had been shot and killed. And my response was good for him. That's the deep hatred I had for him. You want to know what poverty is? Poverty is when you, you don't have a relationship with your dad. When you don't feel worthy enough for him to take a moment to just acknowledge your existence. 90% of the kids we work with, that's their challenge. I don't know what the source of the problem is. I don't know what the solution is, but I do know the trauma that it creates in the mind of a child. My father is dead. I never had the chance to prove to him my worth. I was playing basketball a lot, hoping that one day that will attract him because he was an athlete. He would have probably loved to know his son was able to play at a high level, but that was gone. And so I became angry. I became nasty. I became self-absorbed and uh, started high school in 1995. I went to a school called Andrew Jackson High School. In order to get to class, we had to go through three levels of security. They put us through a metal detector. They did a wand, and they will pat you down. Just so happened, every day they randomly chose me, right, to pat down. But that was my reality. That was my poverty, and my mindset reflected it. For me, I didn't think I was going to make it past the age of 22. I felt that I would either be in, in jail or dead. I wasn't even a bad kid on the streets doing wrong things. For me, that was just the reality of my existence. You want to know what poverty looks like? Poverty looks like a 15-year-old that doesn't expect to live past 22. So let me show you what the gospel will do with this. I'm sitting in class in an AP bio class in my sophomore year. Which is not bad. That means it was, I was oh, I could read at least, right? And uh, two white guys walk into my class. I don't want to be biased or want you to think anything. It, it makes sense given the school I was at was 150% black, 
right? And so these two white guys walk in, and I just, you know, I told my friend, true story, I told him, I said, hey, those are the cops, let's leave. And before we could go, they said, no, we're not cops, we're Campus Crusade. And I did some history lessons about the Crusades. And I was like, so you're about to just come kill us, right? I mean, that's what the Crusades. And they said, no, 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 we're not here to do that. We're here to play you in basketball. Now, understand, at first I thought it was the cops. So I was offended it was going to leave. Then I thought, then they said Campus Crusade. I thought they were crusaders. So I was going to fight back. Then they said they were here to play us in basketball. I stood up, righteous indignation looking back. And I said, there's no way. And I was a little biased. Right? I was like, there's no way. You guys, where are you from? And they were like, Kansas, you know, crazy places. We thought they were different continents. It's like, what part of Europe is Kansas, right? We didn't have a lot of exposure. He said, I said, literally, how dare you come to the Mecca of basketball to play us? In ba- you out of your mind. And they just egged me on. And I, I really got upset. And I, I, you know, I'll be honest, back then I didn't see the world the way I do. I was like, there's no way these white guys are going to come to our hood and beat us in basketball. So the next day we went to play them in basketball, and it was a comp- uh, it, just a contrast. Pastor, I'm so sorry. I know I'm going long. So they came dressed to play ball, but their shorts were really short. Have you ever seen Larry Bird? (laughs) It looks like they borrowed their wear from their kids. I was so short. But us, Allen Iverson had just entered the league, and his stuff was so big, right? His shorts came down to his ankles. So it was us versus them. Guess who won that game? Huh? No, we killed them, right? We, we absolutely killed them. But here, here's what. They came, they had, they had pizza, they had basketball. But after that game, one of those men, I don't remember him. He probably would never remember me. He came and he said, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Standing before him, he might have just seen a kid that liked basketball. What he didn't see is that pain and that emptiness, that brokenness, that anger, that hatred, and pizza and basketball was not going to help that. When he told me Jesus loved me, that was the first time Jesus left the church and came to where I was. And of all places, it's a dirty gym in a dirty school. It's the first time he left and left off the pages of the Bible wasn't just a Sunday school story. He was embodied He, imbo- he was by this man. And all he did was tell me that Jesus loved me. He introduced me to a man named Willie Branch. For the next three years, he discipled me, led me to Christ, and poured into my life. On the outside... Yeah, maybe a better program in school. Maybe some money for clothes. And, but on the inside, none of that would have healed. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to end with the most important part of this message. They introduced me, Willie Branch introduced me to a church. St. Matthew's AME Church. Now it's a little different. It's called African Methodist Episcopalian. See, God wants us to be united, but we don't have to be the same. 
So this church is a black church. Keep in mind, I'm from South America. I'm blacker than everyone else. But our black and their black was different. I went to the church for the first time. Me and my friend Angelo, we sat in the last pews because Willie told us to go. The power of someone who's discipling you. He told us to go, so we went. We sat in the back pew with our basketball and our basketball gear because across the street was a, was a court. We were going to go play. In this service, I don't see it happening in many churches around here. The, one of the pastors would come up and say, oh, do we have any visitors today? And then people would stand up randomly and say, yeah, I'm visiting from South Carolina. My pastor, pastor uh, so-and-so from Bedside Baptist, you know, whatever church. So I'm listening to all these different churches. I'm like, yo, I don't know what to say. I don't have a church, right? And so they came to us, me and my friend Angelo. So I just stood up and said, yo, man, what's up? My name is Dwayne from down the block, right? And I didn't have a church. I couldn't say anything. So I said, I'm from Andrew Jackson High School. Then they started singing a song. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of these churches. They sing and dance at the same time. And so they started singing the song, The Jesus in Me Loves the Jesus in You. And Angelo and I were so foolish, we literally thought they were singing for us, right? It was like, <laughs> these people love us, right? Every Sunday we would go, and every Sunday we would move up a little bit more. The old women in that church were so important to our lives, right? They had all these different women, and they were old, right? I mean, they were old, old. But they wouldn't let us leave the church without talking to us. These women would grab us. How are you doing today? How's school? I'm like, yo, I'm about to lie in church, right? <laughs> it's like, church, school is going spectacular, right? And and then I stopped lying because I was like, yo, I can't lie in church because I heard God will like just strike you down. So I, I mean, I was so like, so I started doing better in school so that when I answered them, I would be like, I ain't lying, right? Then they would do stuff like, you have a girlfriend? And I'm thinking that's going to be like, yeah, I got a girlfriend. Girls love me. And they would squeeze my hand and said, do you have a girlfriend? No, I don't have a girlfriend. And I'm not going to have a girlfriend. They help, they help to keep us accountable those women who were not theologically trained would not let us leave church before grabbing us and praying for us. One of the pastors, he owned a business cleaning houses in uh, Long Island. I don't know if you've ever been to a house in Long Island. Those are nice houses. One summer, he ca I know I'm going long, I'm sorry, but you got to hear this. Gospel, remember the poor, how do we bring this together? The church is where it go comes together, right? So he gave us a job. He looked at me and Angela and said, you guys look like you need a job. We said, we do, but no one would hire us. Actually, we did not go apply anywhere, but no one would have hired us anyway, right? <laughs> he gave us a job without an interview, cleaning houses. He already had two guys working for him. He split us up. We went to the, these houses. Now, these guys were not the best workers. In fact, they showed me how to clean a room. Now, if you went to some of these homes, they were already clean. I think it was a status symbol to have us clean, right? So he, one guy would open the door and say, let me show you how to clean this room. And I'm ready to learn because, you know, I want to learn. He would just clean and shut the door, right? <laughs> right? And I'm like, yo, I could do this for the rest of my life. But I wanna, uh, this is what happened. The first week, he paid us in cash. Let me show you how powerful this was. And Angelo can say the same. Paid us in cash. We counted the money most money we've ever been paid at one time. 
Guess what our discussion was? We've made more money this week than our friends who are selling drugs. And we never again even had to worry about that temptation because someone had really modeled for us what hard work can accomplish. Where did this happen? In the church. See, if they had just come to address the need by giving us some food or some, something like that, that would have come back. But the church modeled grace. They modeled the gospel. Last story, and then I'll pray out. One day, one of the pastors came and said, you guys come to church with your basketball. Let's remember, this is an old school type church. We needed it. You come with your basketball gear. We're going to buy you a suit. And we said, absolutely not. First of all, do you see Alan Iverson wearing suits? Why would I wear a suit? So they kind, of, they kind of forced us out. We were mad. We are upset. Right? We are like, man, I ain't trying. So they take us to this place. And, I mean, we were about to revolt and run away because we didn't want to wear suits. And finally made us try it on. And when we looked in the mirror, man, listen, we looked good. We felt good. We mattered. We, at least to them, we mattered. Why am I saying all this? Let's expand poverty. Poverty is more than just, I don't have something. It's a brokenness, a deep brokenness of, I don't matter. I'm not important. I was supposed to be aborted. My mother almost committed suicide with me. Throughout my life, I thought I was, had no value. But look how valuable I am to God, that he would send these people to my school in the middle of the inner city to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those men were probably told when they were decided to go, don't do it, it's too dangerous. But they knew that in order to preach the gospel, they got to remember the poor. And when they came, they did the basketball, they did the pizza, but they didn't leave without telling us that Jesus is king and that he loves us. That's what we got to do. Remember to preach the gospel, remember the poor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did. The world was messed up when you came. The world is messed up today. When you came, there was a lot of expectations. But what you left us with your Holy Spirit and the gospel message. The church has been around a little over 2,000 years. And that's still what you're counting on. That we're filled with your spirit and they are willing to preach your gospel to a broken world. Give us the resources we need to address specific issues of poverty, but let us never compromise this most holy message that transformed. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life and what you're doing in hundreds of lives at the point and through the different ministries. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.